Well, I'm really excited to be in the text today, but I want to tell you as we go into the text today, um, and, and you're really not supposed to do this as a preacher, you're just supposed to pretend sometimes, but that seems to me to be a little disingenuous. I'm exhausted as I stand before you today. I am really tired. The last couple of weeks have been wonderful, but they have just been incredibly busy. <laughs> I'm talking so many things going on. It is just unbelievable. And one of the things that's made me tired, but it's a good thing, is just how many people God is sending our way to help. And I'm going to ask you to partner with me, with all of us, our elders and our staff and our small group leaders and our ministry leaders, as we continue to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this community. And so I'll have more to say about that just a little bit later. But if I fall asleep in my own sermon today, just somebody come up here and nudge me a little bit, and we'll, uh, we'll kickstart from there, okay? Um, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians today, chapter 9, and that's not the only place we're going to be, so I need you to take your Bibles out and really have them available. If your Bible is on your phone, go ahead and get it out, power it up. If you've got a physical Bible, take it out, put it on your lap, open it to 1 Corinthians 9. We're going to be studying there uh, today and looking at a lot of Scripture today, so please take notes. Please have your Bibles handy. For those of you who are joining us online, we're so glad you're here and hope that you're blessed as a time uh, together in the Word this morning as well. So before we can preach a text, and you know I've said this many, many times, but before we can preach a text, we really need to understand the context. So what is going on in Corinth when Paul writes this letter? Well, if you want a really good overview, I would encourage you to go to our YouTube channel, not right now, but later. Go to our YouTube channel and access a series of lessons that Forey Grove preached this past summer entitled Missing Jesus. And it's a wonderful series of lessons. And that'll give you the greater understanding of 1 Corinthians. Uh, but for the purposes of our sermon today, just a little bit of context to help us understand why this lesson right now, as we think about being peacemakers in a time when so many people truly need Jesus. Corinth was a major commerce hub at this time. I've been in Corinth. I've stood at the very, very top of the ancient city, and you can actually see the waters surrounding Corinth and the, and the, and the Corinth Canal that uh, was carved out, um, an amazing feat of engineering. Um, and it's just... A, really incredible place for commerce. At that time, it was an it just uh, so much money went through there, so much trade. It was, a, it was a, a polytheistic city with multiple Greek and Roman temples constructed in worship to uh, Greek and Roman gods. In numerous ways, Corinth, and this is where this gets really important, in, in so many ways, Corinth paramount values and life choices of millions of people in the United States, particularly things like open immorality at the very top of the ancient city or the ruins of a temple where you could go and, and worship the gods by engaging in sexual activity. 
It's a very twisted place then. In some ways, we're struggling with those same types of inclinations, even in our culture today. Um, there was a tremendous amount of desire to be a person of status, to be a person of wealth, to be famous. We see a lot of that in our culture today too, don't we? Idol worship of every kind. I could go on and on and on describing what Corinth was like, and we could examine dozens of parallels to that culture and our own culture. This past year, I became aware of a resource, and I really would encourage all of you to pick up a copy. It's called Canoeing the Mountains, and it's written by Todd Bolsinger. Canoeing the Mountains, written by Todd Bolsinger. Now, you're not going to agree with everything that he writes in the book. I don't agree with everything that he writes in the book. But he has some profound insights about what has happened culturally in the United States and how the greater church never saw it coming. And now we don't know what to do. It's almost like the cultural tsunami was so overwhelming. It's where do we start? How, how do we get our head or how do we minister? Here's one excerpt from Canoeing the Mountains. When cities are now considering using eminent domain laws to replace churches with tax revenue generating big box stores. When Sundays are more about soccer and Starbucks than about Sabbath, when Christian student groups are getting derecognized on university campuses, when the fastest growing religious affiliation among young adults is none, when there is no moral consensus built on Christian tradition, even among Christians, when even a funeral in a conservative beach town is more likely to be a Hawaiian-style paddle-out than a gathering in a sanctuary, then Christendom as a marker of society has clearly passed, and that's where we are. Most Christian scholars, most Christian writers know that we are and refer to us now as a post-Christian culture. The church has very little influence on the decisions that people make, the way that people live their lives, the moral standard that they either embrace or do not. And that's what's happened here because we, like ancient Corinth, live in a time when truth is basically what you make it. It's whatever works best for you. And we're sitting here as a church. There are churches all over the country. Churches all over the world are scratching their heads asking, what do we do? What do we do? In 1 Corinthians, Paul, I think, provides some insight because he showcased for us how he ministered in that context. And I think if we can borrow from his values and perspectives, and even as the Holy Spirit guided him to write these words, if we can borrow from this truth, I think we might be able to find a way to gain some traction as we move forward as the body of Christ. Paul went to Corinth as a missionary 
he spent about a year and a half there, perhaps a little bit more, but, but for sure we know he was there a year and a half. He converted a lot of people while he was there. He planted a church. So what I want us to do is just take a little bit of time this morning to examine how the church in Corinth was started because I think it's really, really important. So let's look first in Acts chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on screen. If you do have your Bible, go ahead and open it. And I would say even right in the margin, if you're a margin writer, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, because that will give you a tie from this passage to the passage that we're studying today. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul, and even went so far as to become abusive, He shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack you or harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth, preaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul. And they brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways that are contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or a serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, Settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. And so he drove them off. Then the crowd there, they didn't get their way with Paul, so notice what they do. The crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. You know, when you're having a bad day, kick the cat. Okay, well, that's basically what happens here as this scene wraps up. Paul was in Corinth, as I said, for about a year and a half. And when he left there, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, the husband and wife team that we just read about, in Acts chapter 18, they go with him. They go to Syria and on up to Ephesus, uh, even to Jerusalem and, and beyond. And they do the exact same thing in those cities that they did in Corinth. 
They plant churches. They encourage the church. They preach. They teach. They encourage. Basically, they're doing the work of evangelists. And so the relationship that Paul has with Priscilla and Aquila and the church in Corinth, well, this relationship makes a lasting impression on him. If scholars are correct, uh, then Paul's second letter to Timothy is the last one that we have a record of before his death. So 2 Timothy would be one of the very last letters that he wrote. So I want you to notice how Paul closes this letter of the hundreds of things that the Holy Spirit led him to write. He led him to write the following. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth. And then you can see the rest of what's written there, closing out that section. Grace be with you all. So I think it's safe to say as we basically look at this little survey here of relationships and Paul's interactions in Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla, a husband and wife ministry team, they're two of Paul's closest friends. And I think we can also see that Corinth just holds this incredibly special place in Paul's heart. Erastus, by the way, who is mentioned um, in this passage, was the director of public works for the city of Corinth. We read that in Romans chapter 16 and verse 23. If you go to Corinth, you can actually see the Erastus inscription. It's sitting right in the middle of a field on the lower level of the city, one of the strongest archaeological ties to the New Testament in existence. So after Paul spends this year and a half in Corinth, he moves on and does in other cities what he did in Corinth. And church members in Corinth start to fuss and fight. They start to argue over uh, this and, and that. And, and in, in response to the, the troubling reports that Paul is receiving about this fighting that's going on in the church in Corinth, he writes a series of letters to the church. We think there may be four of those letters, possibly, but, but two of them we see in our New Testaments, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And our text today is from 1st Corinthians. 1st Corinthians is a book that can be divided into five separate sections. And in each one of those sections, Paul deals with one of these disagreements, okay? Five major disagreements, five major sections. But this is something that is really, really cool. No matter what the disagreement is, the answer to settle the disagreement is the same every single time. Do you know what the answer to the disagreement is? Anybody? Somebody said it. It's Jesus. Jesus is the answer every single time. As succinct as I can make it, his solution goes something like this. If you believe in Jesus, then act like it in every aspect of your life. You see, some in the church were saying, man, it would be so great if, if, preacher, if, if, if Peter was our preacher. 
And others were saying, no way, dude, Apollos. Apollos is the man. And Paul, Paul said, it's not about your favorite speaker. It's not about the, your favorite preacher to listen to. It's about Jesus. Some in the church said, well, we're free in Christ. We can do whatever we want, and it's all good. Well, whatever they wanted was manifesting itself like an episode of the Jerry Springer show. And Paul said, time out, time out. Free in Christ is not free to live like pagans. If you believe in Jesus, then act like it. Some in the church disagreed over food preferences. And I'm not talking about, well, if Sister Sue stops bringing her favorite casserole, I'm going to church somewhere else. Okay, I'm not talking about that. Major disagreement over meat that had been sacrificed to idols in these Greek and Roman temples. And the Jews were adamant. Eat it. Don't even touch it. And the Gentiles asked, what's the big deal? Greek gods, they're not real anyway. So, so it's just meat. It doesn't make any difference what anybody else intended it to be used for. You sell it in the market. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to eat it. But the problem that's happening here is these, these arguments are getting to such a level that it's, it's derailing the church from its primary mission, which is to bring others to Jesus. And that brings us to our text today, a text that has profound implications for peacemakers. So let's look in 1 Corinthians 9, beginning at verse 19. Paul writes, though I am free and I belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law. I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. And I do this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. So before we can really look and take a deeper dive into this text, we have to focus on why Paul chooses these specific words at this specific time. So earlier in the chapter, I want you to note what he writes, going all the way back to verse 1. He asks, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I'm an apostle to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So here's what's going on. There were people in the church in Corinth who were saying, we don't need to listen to this guy. 
We don't need to pay any attention to Paul. If he were the real deal, he would be charging us for his services. Wait a second. What? Certain members of the church are complaining because Paul is not taking a paycheck? That kind of seems like that'd be a good thing, right? If the preacher preached for free? Well, I want you to notice a really, really important insight here that's offered by Craig Blomberg on this particular section. He writes, itinerant Greco-Roman philosophers and religious leaders supported themselves in one of four ways. Charging fees, staying in the well-to-do households, begging, or working at a trade. The last of these was least common but generally acknowledged to give the philosopher the greatest freedom to teach however he liked. The powerful patrons in the Corinthian church, doubtless, would have preferred to have Paul accept their money but give them deference and political support in return. When he refused and continued to rely on tent-making. Instead, they charged that his unwillingness to go along with their patronage demonstrated that he did not have the same authority as other itinerant apostles or preachers. So if I could sum this up, I would say it this way. Here's their basic response to Paul. Since you won't play by our rules, we won't listen to a thing you have to say. So let's revisit the text we just read, because now we got the full picture. Now we know the entire context. We understand what's going on. And I think this is a text that has serious implications for those of us who are committed to being peacemakers in the body of Christ, not just in the church, but in our community as well. And that'll make more sense here in just a bit. Paul uses this section to set up good news principles that are worthy of our consideration. He's addressing here his, his attitude toward meat sacrifice to idols. He's also addressing being paid as a minister of the gospel. And these principles are important because they can help us understand the Holy Spirit's message that we stay in fellowship with one another even if we strongly disagree while simultaneously clearing the ground of unnecessary obstacles to keep unbelievers, that keep unbelievers from coming to Jesus Christ. So let's look at the text. He writes, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. 1 Corinthians 9.19. The point here is simple. Paul will not be dissuaded by criticism, money, power plays, politics, prestige, threats, popularity contests, bullying, tradition, religion, or anything else that they can throw at him. He will serve everyone, but he will be controlled by no one except 
Jesus Christ himself. Why is this? Because Paul has one motivation, and that is winning as many people to Jesus as he possibly can. Peter, I think, sums up Paul's words beautifully in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 16 when he writes, Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Now, the slave metaphor is very difficult for us to envision today because there are no positive connotations uh, with the word slave. But Paul and Peter both use a term that would have been very common to their day. We are not God's slaves in the beaten into submission sense. We're not God's slaves as in serving a cruel master. Rather, we live as servants. You and I understand that we don't dictate terms to the master. We understand that all we have is is because the master has given it to us. We receive no wages. We belong only to God. No other master has rights to us. No other master can tell us what to do. Now, this is a metaphor that has limitations, surely, but one thing is clear, and that is that our master is benevolent, and he is kind, and he will cause us no harm. So as I think about all that's happening here, my, my eyes are opened as I look at this text to, to, one, to one desired outcome, and that is to serve all to win as many as we can. That's how Paul launches this particular subsection of this greater narrative. To serve all, to win as many as we can. So then the next question is, what does this look like lived out behaviorally for Paul? How did he do this? How did he navigate this, this culture that is Corinth? And, and partner with the church in the process to do this well. Well, we continue in verse 20, and this is what we see. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. And then he uses language that just basically repeats the same thing. In verse 21, he says, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Now he's talking about the Gentiles. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. And so basically in those verses that we just read, we see four audiences. But we see one outcome. Audience one is the Jews. When with the Jews, Paul was trying to win Jews to Jesus. When he was with them, and he was with Jews who observed Jewish customs, practiced the principles of Torah and life and at home and in worship, and Paul had no problem walking side by side with them. In fact, Paul did, he did it willingly. I think this is why Paul can rail against circumcision as essential to salvation in his letter to the Galatians and yet insist 
Let Timothy be circumcised before continuing on his second missionary journey. See it for yourself in Scripture. Notice in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Notice then what happens in Acts chapter 16. Some years after he wrote those words. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewish believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take Timothy along on the journey, so he circumcised him. Because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. You see, Paul understood if the customs and practices of the Jews that I am trying to reach, if, if, if those customs and practices draw them closer to Jesus, then so be it. In fact, as best I can tell, there is not a single place in all of his letters that Paul prohibits Jews from following Torah. The only time he does it is when they say, you have to follow Torah, all the rules and regulations of Torah, and believe in Jesus in order to be saved. When the Judaizers make demands on others, you have to do this. Now Paul says, wait a second, that's not right. That's not right. Otherwise, if you want to observe Sabbath, if you want to observe the holy days, if you want to engage in Torah, I'm all in. The second audience, the Gentiles, those who were under no Jewish influence. If Paul shows up to a, a potluck and pork chops are on the menu, no problem. Tent making on the Sabbath, he's all in. Meat sacrificed to idols, pass the barbecue sauce. Paul is not a chameleon. He's a missionary. He's purposeful. He is learning the values and he is learning the customs of his audience. And then he is letting his relationship with Jesus speak into those places. I think Paul is like the, the woman who lost the coin in Luke chapter 15, searching the house top to bottom, exhausting herself, looking for this coin. And when she finds it, she celebrates. In that same chapter, I think Paul is like the shepherd who left the 99 and went and found the one lost sheep, put it on his shoulders, brought it home, and when he got back, celebrated. I think he's like the father in that same passage who is constantly scanning the horizon for his son who is in distant country. And when he sees him, he runs to him and he brings him home and they throw a party like that house had not seen in many, many years. I believe Paul means what he says when he says, I will do everything I can in righteousness to bring as many people to Jesus as possible. But his counsel here is not just to Jews and Gentiles, it's also to the weak. And we don't exactly know the audience he's describing there. It could be any number of people. It's possible it's younger believers, 
It's possible it's some who are making their appeal. Oh, well, you know what Apollos used to always say? Or, well, Peter, you know, kind of did it this way. Maybe it's those who are questioning his authority. Maybe it's those who are just majoring in minors. It doesn't really matter who it is because Paul says, no matter who it is, I'm going to do whatever I can to win them all. And that's the fourth audience. It's the collective. The Jews, the Gentile, the weak. And all of them together. That's Paul's commitment. That's his target audience. I also want you to notice here what Paul does not say. He doesn't say, I'm going to sin to win sinners. He doesn't say, to the adulterers, I became an adulterer. He doesn't say, to the thieves, I became a, a thief. You need to understand, if you're visiting here and you're thinking about wanting to know about our church family, you need to understand, we, we love you too, that you know, you're in some type of a sinful pattern or sinful behavior. We're going to do everything we can as a church to help you not live into that because that is the way of destruction. We're going to try to help you live into righteousness, even as Paul encourages his audiences to do here and be in covenant relationship with Jesus. Paul never compromises, nor does he ever stop practicing the values of the kingdom. And this is so incredibly important, church. Not just for what it meant then, but for what it means now. A little bit more insight from scholar Craig Blomberg, who notes, in the morally gray areas of life, such as eating food sacrificed to idols and their numerous cultural equivalents in any era, Paul bends over backwards to be sensitive to the non-Christian mores of society around him so as not to hinder people from accepting the gospel. He does not assume that all aspects of culture are inherently evil, but practices what has come to be called the contextualization of the gospel, changing the forms of the message precisely in order to preserve its content. Then, Christianity stands the best chance of being understood and even accepted. Sadly, Christians of many eras have instead tended to be more sensitive to the legalism of fellow church members and have too quickly censured contemporary And do everything we can to connect with others in terms they understand. And I'm going to show you some examples here in just a few moments of ways that God is opening the door for us to do that. Paul says in verse 23, I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. And we are struggling to know how to respond. And when I say we, I mean all churches, we've been hit with this tsunami, this tidal wave of culture change. How do we respond? I think 
principle three, which is very similar to principle two, thinking missionally. I, I think we've got to learn to be missionaries all over again. We've got to learn to be. And this is going to take time. It is going to require prayer and patience and purpose. And my hope and my prayer is, is that we will commit, even as our brother Paul did, to do everything we can to win some to Christ. And so earlier I mentioned some open doors, some things that God is doing, some ways that we as a church can begin serving right now to share the, to contextualize the gospel to some dilemmas and some needs that those in our community have. I often hear in our church, you know, we really need to be doing more outreach. Well, apparently you've been praying about that because God is opening more doors than, than any I have seen in the five years that I have been here to wade into community and have conversation with people and bless people in the name of Jesus. I spoke with Joel Hammond earlier this week. Joel works as a volunteer with our upside-down caring ministry, and he shared with me that he has averaged meeting with one person or one family a day over the past several weeks to explore ways of providing assistance to those who are in need. Church, that's contextualizing the gospel. That's connecting with needs and in love meeting those needs requests as best we can. Before COVID hit last year, we introduced you to Care Portal. Everyone in our church received an email invitation to, to have access to Care Portal. We are fostering, we're, we're partnering with a foster agency here in Brazos County who, who pairs churches and individuals with needs that foster families may experience. Some of you access that link. You get these needs. Some of you may have missed it or didn't really understand what it's all about. Well, let me reintroduce you to it today. On our plug-in page on the website, there's opportunity for you to connect, to receive information from Care Portal. I just want you to listen to three requests that we have received as a church, and this is just in the last 48 hours. A single mother of seven is requesting utility bill assistance in order to maintain a stable living environment for her children and two small grandchildren. This mother has two full-time jobs, but is not able to make ends meet this month. The mother has paid half the utility bill, but is struggling to pay the remaining balance and providing basic needs for her children. This mother is also requesting a bed to sleep on. She has provided beds for her children, but she is currently sleeping on the floor in her bedroom due to financial troubles. Location. Brian, Texas. Here's another. A grandmother and an aunt are taking care of five children, one of which is disabled. They are needing help getting a set of bunk beds for two of the children to sleep in. The boy loves ninjas and the color red. The girl has no preference on bedding. The family also needs a full-size air mattress for the older sister to sleep on. Location, College Station, Texas. 
Grandmother will be placement for her three grandchildren, ages 13, male, 11, male, and 8, female. The children will start going to school in person and are in need of clothing and shoes. The 8-year-old wears size 7, 8 in clothing and is about size 12 and a half to 13 in kids' shoes. The boys wear size large and extra large in boys' clothing and size 14 to 16 in boys' pants and shorts. They wear a size 8 and a half to nine and teen men's shoes. Location, Bryan, Texas. COVID is really starting to catch up to a lot of people. As I think about the passage that we were in this morning, I hope and pray that we as a church will be as committed as we possibly can be to creatively and collectively all we can to reach as many people as we can for the sake of the gospel. So that, especially those who don't know Jesus, can share in its blessings. Can you imagine anything that is more important for us to be about as a church? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this time in your word. We're so grateful that Paul, who wrestled with real-world challenges, real-world situations, was able to dig deeply into the power of your spirit and reveal to us those things, those aspects of our faith. They're most important for us to focus on. Father, help us to do just that. Help us to have a heart for the hurting. Help us, Father, to be willing to engage in conversations, particularly where there is a need that we as a church can meet. All to your honor, all to your glory. We love you, Lord. It's in your son's name we pray.